wish I knew we were bringing medals to church this morning. I've got a medal. Mine's... Mine was from the uh, Boy at Brook Football Club. I did actually play football for the Boy at Brook Football Club. And if they'd had a medal for the worst and least improved player, that would have been mine for two years running. Uh, but actually, I got this medal from them because they had an essay writing competition. And I was the runner-up of the two or three people that actually entered. So there you go. <laughs> My medal is gold-coloured. So. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with today's sermon. This is the second last week that we're looking at uh, Peter's first letter to the church in Asia Minor. Uh, Peter's been very pastoral, actually. He's, he's really concerned about the practical living of the Christian life. And so he began by teaching us about our identity in Christ, if you remember, that we are children, that we are born anew. And because we are children, then we bear the image of our Father who says... Be holy as I am holy. We discovered that as children imitate their parents at work, um, we found that we have a new birth in Christ that has restored us to truly human work. We have a priestly and kingly work to do. And Peter's been telling us what that life should look like in the real conditions in which we find ourselves, and particularly in the conditions of suffering. And suffering's been a really important theme for Peter because he's a pastor addressing the real experience of the people under his care. And as we said last week, the problem of suffering is probably um, the most challenging question any pastor will have to address for any parishioner because it's the biggest theological problem that any of us are going to have to, to handle, right? Because if God is powerful and God is good, why suffering? And for most of us, that means, why am I suffering? Well, as we began to see, uh, Peter describes uh, a variety of, of sufferings. There's a diversity of situations he's addressing. The first is that Christians share in the common suffering that all people are subject to. So he spoke to people living as citizens of the uh, Roman Empire. He spoke to slaves. He spoke to women in, in marriage. Um, we're not exempt from any of the kind of suffering that everyone is subject to, but we are called to respond to it differently. But Christians will also suffer because they are Christians. And becoming a Christian in the first century world certainly increased um, the potential for suffering because it pitted you against the values and aspirations of the culture you were in. And that's Peter's theme today. Suffering because you are a Christian. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, because Christ suffered in his flesh you also should arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the flesh is done with sin. Arm yourselves. Not relax, your troubles are now over, but brace yourselves because whatever the victorious Christian life is, it's not a life free from suffering and it's not a life free from the doubt that suffering can create. In fact, quite the opposite. He tells them in this passage, be alert and of sober mind. 
He's going to come back to that in chapter 5. He'll say it again. Be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why suffering? Well, I started to give you a partial answer to that question last week. And I said two things. If God chose... Well, I said firstly, God chose suffering as the way that he would redeem us and reconcile us to himself. And therefore, secondly, we should expect to suffer in the course of growing up as a Christian and maturing in that reconciliation. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I have to say, this verse has terrified me for years. My father, who coincidentally is here today, once uh, recounted his experience of swimming lessons. Now, I think this would probably, in the context of me complaining about my swimming lessons in the extremely frigid waters of the Boyet Brook swimming pool, and his response to that was, huh, well, I learnt to swim when your grandfather took me down to the dam, threw me in and said, swim. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he told me. Um, he's shaking his head. No, OK, he made that up because <laughs> he probably went to a heated swimming pool and had... Anyway, in my imagination, take up your cross and follow me looks something like this. God is waiting to pounce on me rip me down to the dam, chuck me in to the deep end and see if I swim or not. And in fact, he doesn't really care if I drown or if I make it out. He's making me man up as a Christian. But of course, what does that actually say about God? Well, it sounds suspiciously like our accusation that suffering proves God cannot be good. That in some way, God finds some kind of perverse satisfaction in evil and in making his people suffering. So why suffering? Well, not because God enjoys making us suffering, but as we'll find out today, because suffering is a part of the process of discipleship. Without it, we will not grow and mature. So Peter has two things to say about suffering that are both intensely pastoral. Verse 1. Whoever suffers in the flesh is done with sin. And verse 13, rejoice. So let's look at these two points. Suffering as the necessary growing pains of becoming a mature Christian. And the second point, suffering as a sign of the glory yet to come. Let's look at the first point. Suffering as the necessary growing pains of becoming a mature Christian. Arm yourselves with the same attitude as Christ because whoever suffers in the flesh is done with sin. What does he mean? Well, we need to firstly unpack what Peter uh, has to say about sin because what follows in verses 2 and 3 is a description of what it is that we are now done with as Christians. The, the old way of living that he describes as being conformed to evil human desires. Verse 2. So he gives us a list, a typical representative list, 
Not a complete list, a complete uh, catalogue of human sins by any means. So his representative list has debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Who knows what carousing is? No, we don't. A good night out. There you go. Thank you. Exactly. I don't know why the NIV... I don't know why the NIV can't just say that. There's a second list in verse 15. He talks about us not being, not suffering as a murderer, a thief, any other kind of criminal, which kind of covers everything, or a meddler, what we would call a busybody. Now, we could spend a fairly unprofitable hour examining each of these in detail, but what we're really interested in here is the outline. In outline, these represent unchecked, uncontrolled inner desires that express themselves in outward actions. And they have three things in common, really. In the first instance, they devalue God. That's what idolatry is, and that's the essential nature of them. But as a consequence, they devalue other people. That's where stealing, murder, sexual sin, meddling come into it. And thirdly, they devalue the self, and that's where Gluttony, addiction, and a good night out, once again, sexual sin, also comes into it. And all sin, by definition, operates across these three domains and defaces what God originally designed to be good. Relationship with him, relationship with others, and my own value as an image bearer. So sin is sinful or Bad, for want of a better adjective, not because God is against pleasure, because everything in the creation narrative was absolutely suffused with pleasure. It it was all good. It was all to be embraced. It was all to be enjoyed. No, sin is sinful because it's opposed to all of that. It's opposed to everything that God set in order so that we might know him and enjoy him. So sin by nature opposes his rule, which is kind of strange because his rule is the very ground of our existence in the first place. Uh, Sin turns other people into objects to be exploited as I now seek to rule. And importantly, sin defaces me. I cease to be a bearer of God's image. I lose my true identity. I lose myself as I reject God's rule. And the thing that really binds all of these three things together, the essential nature of sin, is sin is selfishness. Or in Luther's words, homo incovatus in se. Humanity turned in upon itself. Humanity turned in upon itself. A definition that Luther probably even got from Augustine, centuries before. That's the essential doctrine of sin throughout the life of the church. And so, for all these reasons, Peter then leads us to looking at this way of life characterised by all of those things um, as being something like a condemned house. This way of life, he says, is not structurally sound. It's not fit for purpose So it's been appointed for destruction. It's going to be demolished. It has no value. It has no purpose in the neighbourhood. And so he says, 
they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So that's sin, but how are those who suffer in the flesh done with sin? What does he mean? Well, there's really no question that Peter understands Christians will continue to feel the pull of their inward desires in all those domains and in all those ways. He would hardly mention those two lists except that it was a real possibility for Christians in his congregations to be drawn to them. We're done with the old way of living. But that hasn't made our lives easier. In fact, it's made life more complicated. And there's two complications. There's the internal complication and an external complication. The internal complication to being done with sin is that we continue to experience it, but now we experience it as temptation. We come upon a kind of suffering that is temptation. It's part of what Jesus went through. Part of the suffering of Jesus was his enduring temptation. The author of the book of Hebrews made that link between temptation and suffering when he wrote, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. After his baptism, as we read, Jesus' status as God's declared son was immediately put to the test. He was sent out into the wilderness and, and temptation was set before him. He was tempted to use power to satisfy his physical needs. So make bread as, as though having bread were the ultimate stuff of human existence rather than having relationship with God the Father. Uh, Jesus was tempted to claim a kingdom based on bowing down and worshipping Satan, not based on bowing down and worshipping God. And he was tempted to put his relationship with God to the test in a public display of what you could really only call magic. Throw yourself down from the temple and angels will catch you. It's a move that would have both destroyed any trusting relationship with God, but would have also destroyed relationship with Jesus' onlookers. Because if he was prepared to manipulate God in this way, how would he not become a manipulator of people in the same way? Of course, Jesus passed the test. He suffered what we have to suffer and did not give in to temptation. And he was successful because he was God's son and would not conceive any other way of being other than to be a faithful representative of his father. And so Peter connects the idea of temptation to sin to our suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6, he said, In all this you greatly rejoice, although for the present it's necessary to be grieved by many trials. And in 4.12, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. you know, that word for trials, the, the verb for test in Greek, is the same word we will also translate as temptation or to be tempted. Temptation is a kind of suffering. 
Because as we learn to say no to temptation, we're saying no to the way of living that the world has uh, embraced in opposition to God. And that means abandoning our quest for comfort at all costs in order to live as God's children. And that involves a struggle. A struggle that will engage us in, in every area, in our minds, our wills, our desires, our bodies. It will necessarily be uncomfortable. It is true suffering. Arm yourselves, Peter says. And that's certainly part of what Jesus intends when he says, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul said that to be a Christian is to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature because we've taken off the old self and we've put on the new self which is being renewed. Putting something to death is necessarily a painful process. And so maturing into the likeness of Jesus necessarily involves suffering in the face of temptation. And as, as one commentator put it, suffering is the evidence that we are done with the old life and are now living the new life. And I think the key to living well as a Christian in the face of a temptation is not our resolve to try harder. Historically, um, Christians have, have been prone to practising asceticism. Uh, asceticism is a way of punishing the body uh, either to appease our consciences or to try and cure ourselves of inner temptation. But actually, Christ has done both of those for us. As a sacrifice, he bears the guilt, our guilt, and covers over the offence of our sin and by reconciling us to God, he brings us into a relationship that's now unhindered by our sin. There is no need for asceticism in the Christian life. We don't conquer sin that way. How do we deal then with sin? How are we done with sin? Well, we're done with sin because we are sons. That's how we do this. Jesus went into the wilderness as a son... And he was armed with two things. He had a, de a declaration from his father. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. The second thing he was armed with was the presence of the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Spirit came upon him and it was the Spirit who led him out there into that experience. And we too have both of these as a result of Jesus' resurrection, because we are sons. We have the Father's acceptance upon us. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And we've also received the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, Peter says, For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now he's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 11 there. Isaiah 11, some of you will know uh, really well. It, be it begins this way. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. He's 
He's talking there about the Davidic descendant. But now Peter takes that and applies it to us. We come to share in the spirit that is resting upon Jesus. So we are armed in exactly the same way Jesus is armed. So how should that look in practice? Well, Peter describes, uh, opposite his list of um, sinful, uh, his sinful lists that he has, he lists the behaviours that are characteristic of believers who are now in Christ. Be alert and of sober mind, he says, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Christians are not the people who don't do stuff, okay? Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't hang around with folks that do. You know that one? No? That must be a Baptist thing. Um, Christians aren't the people who don't do stuff. Christians are the people who are positively engaged in doing stuff. We are the people who love God love each other, and love their neighbour. And so he describes, be hospitable to one another. Use the gifts you have to serve one another. Something positive is growing. So the internal dimension of suffering is the way it forms Christ's character in us. It matures us. But I also said that suffering takes on an external dimension for those that are done with sin. His listeners are being persecuted, both verbally and physically, by non-Christians. Remember I said in a previous week that Christians were considered very strange creatures in, in Greco-Roman society, that their refusal to fall in line with the values and aspirations of their culture earned them abuse and, and the opposition of, of others in society who actually considered Christians to be immoral and perverse. They were a threat to what was considered good and orderly society. And that was before they even opened their mouths and said anything. And we find ourselves in much the same position today. Um, some of you might be familiar with Steve McAlpine's blog and, and the book he recently wrote called uh, Being the Bad Guys. The, question, the, the premise of the book is, he asks the question, uh, he, he says, we have become the bad guys in our society. And he said, when did that happen? Because Christians and Christianity used to be the good guys. Because we, we gave to Western society uh, its most important values, particularly values that are cherished today of um, equality, value, dignity, the worth of human beings. He says now those very values are being used to critique Christians. He says we are now being viewed as those who are intolerant. We are being now portrayed as immoral and perverse because we are out of step with the values of our society. And he says we should expect to suffer. So the external dimension of uh, suffering, the external dimension of being done with sin is the rejection we are going to experience from our culture as we refuse to fall in line with its values. So our first point, suffering is the necessary growing pains of becoming a mature Christian. 
But that brings us to the second point, the second thing Peter has to say about suffering, which is rejoice. Suffering is a sign of the glory that's yet to come. Look at verse 13. He writes, But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, well, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. You know, rather than being dismayed at suffering, he says Christians are to take this as a good sign. It's, it's evidence that, in fact, we belong to him. Here's the only place in the New Testament where Christians are called Christian. And, and Peter puts the, uh, the designation Christian right next to suffering. To be a Christian means you will suffer. But he says being a Christian doesn't simply mean sharing in Christ's suffering. It also means sharing in Christ's glory. That's the hope we have. We endure suffering now because we are looking forward to Jesus' kingdom when it's revealed in all its substance and beauty. It's not evident right now. In fact, the evidence of the coming kingdom is us. And the evidence of the kingdom may well be us in our suffering. As people who are invested in the coming kingdom and not invested in passing comforts, then we're going to suffer. And that's not because God's against pleasure or comfort, but it's because pleasure and comfort that we experience now is, is, is a distorted version of the real thing that we are hoping for. And we must be in no doubt as to the reality of what we are hoping for. Jesus and his kingdom is not the consolation prize for people who don't have the wits to succeed in this life or for people who are merely unfortunate or, or uh, lack good luck. Jesus' kingdom is the real game. Jesus' kingdom is really the only game in town. So part of the answer to the question, why suffering, is that we live in an as yet incomplete universe. We're waiting for the appearance of the new heavens and the new earth. We are all of us unfinished work. So it's not really surprising that Christians have bodies that age, that get sick, uh, that maybe are stricken with an ongoing disability, same as everyone else. It's not really strange to discover that Christians suffer temptation. It's not really strange to discover that Christians suffer opposition and ridicule because suffering is an indicator that all has not yet been put right. What we are in Jesus has not yet been unveiled. Paul, writing to the Romans, said as much, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And then he said, Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So to become like Jesus in his suffering, 
foreshadows his making us into something rather like himself. And that's something that we finally don't have words for, something that our imaginations finally struggle to take hold of. But it's in light of such a glory that previous generations of Christians who went before us were prepared not only to forfeit the comforts of life, but to forfeit life itself. Peter is a pastor who's intensely interested in helping us live the Christian life. Let me, let me finish with the words of someone who really knew suffering up close and per, uh, personal. Um, some of you might be familiar with the story of Joni Erickson Tata. Yep, everyone over the age of 50 is nodding their heads. So she, this was a young woman who I think in the 1960s as a teenager uh, dived into a swimming pool, fractured her neck, had a high spinal fracture, became instantly quadriplegic um, and became intensely angry with God. Why am I suffering? Why has this happened to me? Well, through the patient witness and care of her friends, she became a Christian and a Christian who then... Uh, connected the dots for the rest of us. What does it mean to suffer? Well, she had a hope. She writes about the hope that I, I, I can't get up and run now, but I'm looking forward to the day when I'll get up with renewed legs and run in fields of gold. But, she said, at the moment, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. Peter concludes, peace to all of you who are in Christ.